Today's Bible reading is from Esther 1 through to Esther chapter 2, verse 1. And if I may say, this is a ripper of a Bible reading. <laughs> and I can't wait to hear what Lee's got to say about this. Oh, I don't know how you guys are going to respond when you read it, but as I was reading it, I was like... <laughs> so let's, let's go. Um, Esther 1, verse 1. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, is that how you say it? Ahasuerus? The Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all of his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendour and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king, and drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Miuman, Bisa, Habona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zetha and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the next men to him being Kashinas, Shetha, Admatha, Tashish, Meres, Masina and Memusin, the seven princes of Persia and Media who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. Then Mamusin said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behaviour will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have signed, who have heard of the queen's behaviour will say the same 
to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree was when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honour to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mamukin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. After these things, when the, king, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what, she had, and what had been decreed against her. This is the word of the Lord. All right, give her a round of applause. It's pretty good. Let me ask you a question. I'm sitting right here, and so as I was looking up, and Shirley pointed this out to me earlier, and I thought it wouldn't be that big of a deal. Can you guys see me? I'm a little taller. Can you guys see me okay? Are the flowers in the way? Everything's good? Yeah? All right. I just want to make sure. Not because I'm good looking, so good looking to look at, but just, just so that we uh, can have eye contact. Really, it's more for me than for you, quite honestly. I want to see your, see your eyes when I'm, when I'm preaching. So we're starting a series over the next few weeks uh, through the book of Esther. And, and one of the things that we need to look at before we just jump right into the book of Esther is we need to kind of get a broad understanding of what Esther is about, and then we're going to jump into this passage more rightly. Uh, so some of the commentaries that I've been reading and some of the things that I've been looking at have said things like this. The book of Esther is one of the most beautiful stories in all of literature. Even though the name of God is not mentioned in it, no book of the Bible teaches his providence more forcefully. The book covers a period of about 12 years, falling somewhere between the events recorded in the 6th and 7th chapter of the book of Ezra. The setting is the court of Xerxes, or Azarsurus, uh, who is the king of Persia. In this period of history, there are a great number of Jews who still lived in Persia. So what's taken place for us to know is that there's been people that have gone back to the promised land, Jews who have gone back to the promised land, but there are those who have stayed in Persia. So they're present. They're still exiles. They've said this. At the end of the day, this book is really a story about Jewish identity and heritage. It's a story about what it means to be Jewish in the context of an exile. It's the story about God's preservation and providence of a scattered people. God's presence even in his hiddenness. Ultimately for us, Esther is a story of exile, about being an exiled Jew, an exiled person of faith, and what it means to live in a place that is foreign, to live in a place where you are a foreigner, where you and your kinsmen are aliens. Esther is a book about how to live in your community in a place that is indifferent towards you or hostile towards you. 
Now, for those of you who have been with us over the last few months, does that sound oddly familiar? Isn't that what 1 Peter was about? How to live as an exile and an heir of the kingdom in a world that is indifferent or hostile to you? How we live the beautiful life of the gospel out among those that are around us. And so here what we have in the book of Esther is a playing out of that. A real life story, a narrative for us to go into and see how does God work, even though he might be silent, even though his name is never mentioned in the book of Esther. How do we live, even today, in a place that around us looks to be so either hostile directly and more often than not just indifferent towards us? Because reality is, here in Australia, we experience a persecution that is of apathy more than anything else, of indifference. And so how does that feel for us? But in feeling that, how do we respond? And so we have to look at the book of Esther, who will teach us how we are to respond in this place. So, what's going on here? What's happening in this introductory chapter, in this introductory verses for us? You'll see that in the sermon title, I have said that this is a prelude. It's about wine and wisdom and wrong decisions. And we'll see that very clearly taking place. But do you all know this phrase? Welcome to the lifestyles of the rich and famous. Do you remember Robin Leach and the show that he used to do? Robin Leach was this man who really grew up poor but then started a TV show where he was just profiling all the rich and famous around the world. It would be movie stars or businessmen or princes or kings or all sorts of things. Now, it probably says something about me, but it was one of my favorite shows to watch as a kid. Partly probably because of the accent, but because I just loved the opulence and the amazingness of what was going on in these men and women who were just so wealthy that they could do whatever, jump on a plane and go do, you know. We have that today, by the way, don't we? We see that happening today. How many of you, when you're flipping around TV, get caught up in the, in the uh, lotto commercials that talk about having millionaire problems? Like, where are we going to go eat? They're on a jet, and they're talking about Chinese food or Italian food or Thai food, and, and you're thinking they're going to go down the street, but really they're in a plane and they're flying, and you think, wow, that's amazing, right? That's what's happening here. <laughs> that's this king. This king is like full-blown lifestyles of the rich and famous. He has got it going on and even more. It is just beyond imagining. We can't even in our minds grasp how powerful he was, how mighty he was, how wealthy he was. And, and, and the author of the book wants us to be known and make sure that we understand it. Because here's a guy who's calling all his important people into his kingdom and he throws a party for one day, no, two days, no, 180 days. Wow. That's amazing. That's Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. 180 day party. I would get worn out and tired. But he didn't. 
He loved it so much so that he thought, now that I've had all my, my, my wealthy friends in, now that I've had all the power brokers in, now that I've impressed everybody around the world that I wanted to impress, now that they're all here, because think, 180 days and they're coming as far as Ethiopia over to this far, and so they're having to travel to get there. So some are coming on day three. Think about those folks. They must have been really important and close to the king because they lived real in there. And some of them were getting there on day, you know, like 130, right? So they only had a 30-day party as opposed to the 160-day party. And they probably felt a little left out, but they knew they had to travel. And they couldn't just jump on a plane at that time. And so this party's going on, but then after that's done, he says, nope, nope, not done yet. I want to have everybody in my kingdom, everybody that's left, to have this big, huge party. And it's going to be seven days. It's a blowout party. And he tells the servants, give people as much drink as they want. Now that's a sign of wealth. That we're not worried, we're not skimping. As a matter of fact, it says that they all had differently etched mugs or cups. Everybody had their own cup. It's like a trinket that they get to go home with. I was at the king's party. It's like a wedding favor. And they're super excited about it. And he says, no compulsion. Just give them as much drink as they want. Now, our sensibilities think to ourselves, well, moderation. Right? There's no moderation going on here. This is an all out bender of a party. These guys are fully tilted by the end of this thing. And what does the king decide to do? Well, there's his wife. Now, she was the favorite. Understand that this king had concubines, lots of them. And we find that out later in the story. But Vashti was his wife. She was the queen. She was the highest of the high. She was recognized as important in his life. So important that she's able to throw her own party for all the women. And the king wants to show her off, the ultimate trophy wife, right? And he says, not only is all this great, not only can I throw a 180-day party, not only can I throw this seven-day party for everybody around, not only can I let you drink as much as you want and give you a, a going-home gift as a cup that you'll remember for the rest of your life, you got to see my woman. you got to see what she looks like. Now, some commentators say that he was asked her to put on the crown and to come out in all her regalia. Some commentators say he asked her just to put on her crown and come out with just her crown on. We don't know. It's not very clear here. We're not sure. But what we do know is that the king wasn't seeing her as a person any longer. He was seeing her as an object. He was seeing her as something more about him than about her. And so as we step into the book of Esther, as we step into this prelude, as we begin to see what's happening, the first thing we need to recognize is that we're not that far off from this king. Now, we might not be able to throw a party like he throws, but our heart can definitely move very quickly into the place that his heart moves. And sadly, it happens to us without much alcohol. So we can't do a Jamie Foxx and just blame it on that. We have to move and understand in our own minds, in our own hearts, that in fact we're like the king because we stop seeing people as people and we begin to see them as the ends or the means to our ends. Or we see them as objects that 
actually give us more meaning than the actual meaning that they hold within ourselves. Just think for a minute about your relationships, about the people that you've had in and out of your lives. And perhaps think for a moment of someone who you were friends with or you were close to who now are no longer that close or that friendly with you. That there's been a, a break in that relationship. I could almost guarantee that that break in that relationship began to come in when the focus moved off of care and delight in the other and a focus on self and what I can get. That in our lives, we will move to a place where we dehumanize those around us in order to make ourselves feel good. We will dehumanize those around us in order for us to maintain our status and our stature in our own heart. That people should be for me, not me for others. And so that's where the king's heart is here. He wants to make sure that people recognize him and see him. And he wants to show them just how beautiful this woman is and how not lucky he is, but how lucky she is to be my queen. How do we know that that's his heart? How do we know that that's his response? Well, because it tells us that when she being wise, 180 days, seven days of all out drinking, a bunch of men in a room asking her to come in. Being wise, because she knows in a situation like that, it's not going to end up good for her. Not only just the, the emotional tragedy that could take place there and being objectified in that way. Not, not only the, the emotional and psychological damage that can come when your personhood is so diminished that you just become an object that can be commanded, but how unsafe it could be for her physically even to step into that place. So being wise, she says, no, I'm not going to put myself in that situation. I'm not going to walk into that room. And we recognize that the king has lost all comprehension of her, her personhood because his response is not to stop and think and wonder why. It is to blow up in anger and to say, it's my way. It's my way or the highway. See, what happens is when we depersonalize people in our lives so much that our anger becomes justified to us. And so whatever has caused the division that we've had in those relationships, we say to ourselves, but I'm right. And until they seek my forgiveness, then I don't have to be for them at all. But being wise, she says no. I don't want to come there. Now, there's another reason why she says no. And that's because within this story that we're going to see, God is moving, God is working, God is operating. And so in her no, in her wisdom, God is setting a course of action to save his people. 
You see, because as we work further into the story, we will see that there is wanting to be a wipeout of God's people. There's going to want to be a a decimation of God's people. And God has to move someone else into the king's sphere of relationships in order for there to be voice spoken. And so, yes, the wisdom of Vashti to say no is present, but God is also moving in his silence here. Now, the king in his anger, he's not very smart. He, he has to ask the wise men around him, and he wants to say to them, tell me what I should do. And this is what takes place. They, they look at him and they say, look, oh king, oh great one, she's dishonored you. But not only has she dishonored you, she's dishonored everybody. And if we don't nip this in the bud, then every woman in the kingdom is going to dishonor every man. So make a rule that you'll never see her again. Kick her down. Set an example of her. Poor wisdom. Poor wisdom on their part. For one thing that they did is they took this very thing. Now, for us, it definitely seems big because he's the king, and in that culture, if the king says something, then you should do it. You should obey it. If you remember when we talked about 1 Peter, we talked about following the government, right? But there are times where we can't follow the government because of what they're doing and how they are operating. This was one of those times. Vashti knew, I I can't follow this. I won't follow this. But the reality is, interpersonally, among these two, this husband and this wife, this king and this queen, there was a disagreement on how life should happen. And he sought counsel for people who took this disagreement that could have been resolved if he would have gone forward to Vashti and said, why don't you want to come? But instead, he talks to others and says, what's the deal? And they take this little problem and they expand it. They take this little thing, this little offense, and they add things on to it. They say, well, it's not just about this. It's also about every other woman. And it's not just about every other woman. It's really about my woman. (laughs) Because I don't want my wife to act like your wife. And so they begin to pile on. And they make this small offense into this big, giant thing that needs to be responded with shock and awe, with power. When all it was, was a wife saying to a husband, I don't want to step into that place. You've gone off the rails a little bit here, king. It's unsafe for me to be there. But instead of running to her, he listens to the wisdom of those that are around him who blow that up. Oh, in our lives we do that so often, don't we? In our lives, we'll have this little offense that takes place in our heart, a little slight that happens. That person pulled in front of me. Why did they pull in front of me? Don't they see me driving here? And by the time we get to the next light, that person should be going to hell because they've pulled in front of me. And of course, I'm righteous in the way that I'm driving. That waiter didn't get that food out to me soon enough. My children didn't clean their room when I asked them to clean their room. 
My roommates don't clean up after themselves in the kitchen. And that little bitty offense. And what do we do with that? Well, first of all, we talk to ourselves and we say, aren't I right? Yes, I'm right. Do you think you're right? Yes, I know I'm right. Of course I'm right. Why would I be wrong? I'm rarely ever wrong. Of course I'm right. And then we go and we seek people who will confirm what we already think. They'll come to us and they'll go, yeah, I don't know, man. Those are terrible roommates. You should get rid of them and get somebody new. By the way, I'm looking for an apartment. <laughs> right? Because that's the thing. When we have unwise counsel, the root of unwise counsel is not that they care for us so much that they want to confirm us. It's that they care for themselves so much that they don't care what really happens to us. They're worried about what's going to happen in their own lives, in their own ways. They have the little emperor me sitting on their own hearts, battling the little emperor me that's sitting on my heart. And I'm wanting confirmation and they're wanting confirmation and we battle against one another but they whisper sweet words to us that pump up our ego. Why? Because they care for us? No. Had a wise man been there, he might have said, maybe you should go talk to her. <laughs> See what's going on. Had a wise man been there, maybe he would have said, dude, we've been drinking for seven days. I think we need to put, pump the brakes a little bit. <laughs> like, I don't think that's that wise. But instead, thinking of themselves, they build and build and make a small offense bigger. And we do that too in our own lives. Now here again, remember that this is not just about what's going on there. What we see is God preparing, moving, allowing things to take place in order for him to bring salvation to his people. Which we'll get into because this is just the prelude. This isn't the whole story. And so he sends it out and he says, look, I don't want to see my wife anymore. I can't see my wife anymore. Now, historically, what takes place after this is we're not talking about a couple of months later between the end of chapter one and the beginning of chapter two. It's about five years. And as a matter of fact, the king goes off and he fights some wars. And then he comes back. Historically, we know that to be true. And when he comes back after he's worn torn, after he's been worn out, after he's been away long enough, and it says his anger has subsided, he recognizes, I had something that was good. I had a relationship that was profitable for me. And maybe we're giving him the benefit of the doubt there. Maybe it was just like, I really like the way she looked and I haven't seen her in five years and I'd really like to have her in my bed. Maybe. Whatever the case may be is he recognizes that he can't because he set a law. He made something that was concrete that said now and forevermore, I can never see her because she is not allowed to come into my presence. You think that's a little bit of an overreaction? And isn't that what we do? When we have an offense that happens to us, don't we blow it up and allow it to build so much that then we will make proclamations within our own heart that say, I will never let that happen again.
Many of you know that I was been raised in a, a Christian family my whole life. Very blessed by that. That my dad is a pastor. That my granddad is a pastor, was a pastor. That I have uncles and cousins that are pastors. That, that for much of my life, I have never been without knowing God and who He was. That I have not had a place in my life where I have not experienced or believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that I was loved by God. Now, part of that's because my parents treated me like the apple of their eye and cared for me greatly, and that's awesome. It also causes great psychological damage because you think you're God, but that's a whole other story we're not going to get into right now. But when I was eight years old, I heard rustling downstairs in our house, and I made it to the staircase, and I looked down and I saw my father there and he was broken and it was clear that he was broken and I didn't quite know why he was broken. And he walked up and he met me halfway through the stairs, up the stairs, and he looked at me and he said, um, Grandpa Hinkle's passed away. And tears were running down his face. And my dad is a, a, a heart on his sleeve led by his emotion kind of guy and When I was eight, I said, God, you might love me, but you're never going to hurt me that way. I'm not going to love anybody like that, that I would feel that pain. Now, after that, I loved people. I got married. I had children. Still married, same woman, same children. It sounded a little bit weird coming out of my mouth there as I heard it. But it really wasn't until about 10 years ago that I recognized that I loved God and I knew that He loved me, but I couldn't trust Him any further than I could throw Him. And He's an infinitely bigger being than I could ever imagine, so I probably couldn't throw Him that far. So a proclamation by an eight-year-old seeing his dad cry affected me for over 30 years years. It caused me to question the goodness of God at all times. It caused me to look for the scam underneath what was happening. It moved me to a place of cynicism, of always wondering who's trying to get over on top of me. It limited my relationships it limited me being able to give who God had created me to be completely to anyone and everyone. Because of a proclamation of an eight-year-old when he saw his dad have a tear. Do you see what I'm saying here, folks? We have a tendency to make proclamations in our life that come in and they enslave us. They trap us in a place. And what God is saying in this is, I want to bring you freedom. The thing that we need to hear most of all is that we can follow this bad advice. We can allow ourselves to be drunk on wine, our power, or however else we want to avoid this world. 
But what we need to recognize, what I have to constantly be reminded is that God is lovingly pursuing us to bring us into relationship with him so that our proclamations that we make that cause us bondage can be broken and we can be free to know him completely, to know ourselves completely, to know all others completely, and to know the place that he has put us to be. And that's what we should gather from here. Let's not be like the king. Let's not make proclamations in our lives when things go bad that cause walls to be built in our relationships. But let's move quickly in saying, yes, I'm offended by that. And maybe possibly it's even right that I'm offended by that. But how do I step into relationships still? How do I move towards that place of reconciliation? How do I move to a place where I can repent and others can repent? In the end, how can I find delight in that person? Because when we have delight in those that are around us, we see them as the people God created them to be and not the problem that's in the way, not the pain that has created in my life, and not some depersonalized person that I can take advantage of. We see them fully and how God has created them to be. Now, don't get me wrong, sadly... We had to have Vashti go through this pain. We had to have the king be this stupid because God was working. His providence was moving forward. And what we will see throughout the rest of this book is we will see God using eunuchs who are despised and put aside, orphan girls who are despised and put aside, Jews in exile who were despised and put aside to save and deliver God's people. And how amazing that journey will be for us. Let me pray. Lord, hear the words of our hearts. And these words, we pray that they will be from you, that they will bring you glory and honor. And that if they are not your words, Father, that they will burn up and blow away. But if they are, that they will take root in our lives and they will bear good fruit. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen.